Hello and welcome to episode 38 of Cultural Capital. I'm Andy Hazel. I'm Eloise Ross. And I'm Anders Furs. And for this episode, we're abandoning our usual MO because we're out of Melbourne and reporting to you from the city of Bendigo, where we've come to visit the exhibition Edith Head, The Costume Designer. We'll also be sharing our movie picks and our favourite costumes in film history. But first, the Edith Head exhibition. And now I'd like to introduce the world-famous designer, Miss Edith Head. The most famous designer in motion picture history was the legendary Edith Head. For over four decades of her 60-year career, Edith brought magic to the silver screen in her unforgettable costumes for Paramount Pictures. Edith Head, the costume designer, showcases the work of Hollywood's most noted costume designer. Edith Head was the recipient of eight Academy Awards and 35 nominations, and this exhibition features clips of her receiving those awards, dozens of outfits she designed, clips from the films they're in, short documentaries about her work from the era, and sketches she made of outfits and looks. Anders, what did you make of Edith Head, the costume designer? It's quite a functional name for an exhibition, is it not? Um, I, it's straight up, it, it is what it is. I really liked the exhibition. I thought it was good. I thought it was very cleverly designed and also big, a lot more comprehensive, I think, than I was perhaps expecting. There must have been at least, what, 50, 60 costumes more? Yeah, uh, I'd say 100. Maybe, maybe I'm overstating it. Yeah, 60-ish. Anyway, quite a few. Uh, from a lengthy career, I mean, she worked in Hollywood for five decades. The exhibition divides her work into key themes. So, for example, there's uh, one... Uh, spotlight on patterns and textiles, one on her costuming for sort of musicals and spectacle cinema, uh, a focus on how she branded herself, etc., etc. And what I found very clever about the exhibition was that it really showed how the exhibited costumes reveal a lot about the context that produced them, I guess. And the exhibition really does tease this out. So, for example, there's a sarong dress that Edith designed for Dorothy Lamour in the film Aloma of the South Seas. And we find out that uh, it, the informational plaque tells us that um, the censors banned a full-on sarong. So instead she had to wear this sarong dress fusion sort of costume it tells us that context which i think is what makes these kinds of exhibitions valuable it's not just here are some pretty objects to look at it's what do these objects say about the industrial systems that design them and about the designer herself uh eloise you're a huge fan what did you think Sorry, of the designer, I should say. <laughs> and, and the dress. much everything. <laughs> Look, I'm a big fan of a lot of stuff, as no doubt our listeners will know or anyone who knows me. I don't know what to say. I loved this exhibition. I knew I would. I adore Edith Head and I adore Hollywood costumes. I've written before and spoken before about how seeing these, like, items in the flesh is just an incredible experience. There is some tactility there. Obviously, you see these things yeah, on the screen and there is, there's so much that makes up a film and there is so much that, that draws us into a film, uh, into, like, engagement with a film that, like, our memories kind of get entwined with. And so seeing costumes... Um, in an exhibition space or in any other kind of context can just be this incredible experience. I knew I was going to be completely overwhelmed by this exhibition. There are a lot of costumes in this exhibition and I think I I expected that there would be. Um, Bendigo Art Gallery is an incredible space and they don't put on exhibitions just for the sake of it. There's obviously a lot of work that goes in um, in this exhibition were costumes that come from several different um, studios and archives in Los Angeles, Brisbane, from all around the place. So it was incredible. I cried uh, on multiple occasions as <laughs> Andy and Anders will attest. Um, including right at the start of the exhibition. What was the costume? That uh, you emotionally responded to? Oh, my God. Okay. So, <laughs> several people had actually personally texted me photos of the Barbara Stanwyck dress, the very <laughs> first dress that she's wearing in The Lady Eve, which is a 1941 film directed by Preston Sturges. So, several people know how much I love both Barbara Stanwyck and this film and had texted me photos. Um, so, I knew it was going to be in this exhibition, but I didn't know it was going to be the very first thing I saw. So, I kind of – I didn't have a, – a, a, I mean, my guard was let down, I suppose. Um, and I walked in and I saw it and I actually squ squealed and cried and like had to kind of 
leave the exhibition again and calm down a little bit and uh, cower behind Andy and Anders before I went back in. Anyway, that made me cry to begin with. Um, but it's not the first Hollywood costume that has that has had that effect on me. But basically, it was amazing to see and it was amazing as well that it was not simply either only a celebration of Edith Head or only a celebration of these individual films and their effect, but it was a celebration of both of these things together and a whole lot more, you know, within the Hollywood apparatus Um, and that we got to see all of these things memorialised and given a historical presentation. It was beautiful. I am still a little bit high from it. (laughs) Andy? What I really liked was the way that... We began with the Aloha dress, which is like the key moment for her breaking into the Hollywood costume industry and before she reinvented it. But also looking at the way that her MO seemed to be quite different. So there was this always this agenda to the costume. There was the very we got to, we get to see through some videos how closely she she would work with directors, with cameramen, with uh, various other people who were you know key to developing the film. But she'd be right in there early on, working with character, working out how the costume could push the story forward. Or you know, and she explains you know why she might make some certain choices. So there was this um, way that I feel almost this attention to detail that probably is still existing. In in Hollywood today, but I don't really feel it or see it as much. But just this idea that you would break it down, you would hand draw. I didn't, you know, you have to be, I didn't realise you had to be such a brilliant illustrator as well as a costume designer, as well as being able to work and communicate really effectively with all these other people in the production, as well as being able to see these costumes through, right, right, you know, right through to, you know, to being on set, essentially. And she would pull off the, you know, multiple films, like so many films a year, just the workload and just having to be at your A game that for that long, you know, for five decades, like you were saying, Anders, it's kind of incredible. Well, like, extraordinary, isn't it? It's a yeah. phenomenal achievement, and particularly if somebody who came from you know, not having this sort of background to like blagging her way into the industry essentially, like she will explain in a clip that you'll hear. And also the, the way that she just made everything so iconic. So, you know, she taught, famously she only ever wore four colours, you know, beige and black and white or grey or something, I think. Uh, and so she would always like push the attention to other people. Yeah, she didn't want to um, in any ways kind of trump the, the look of her stars who she was mm. dressing on the set. Yeah, so that what was interesting was actually getting to know her a bit through those videos. That was my favourite part, I think, because we got to see fair – like we didn't get to see many of the later period outfits, like in the Sting that she won her last Academy Award mm. for. It was mainly focused on you know the more iconic stuff and the, you know, the more exciting stuff that they were able to access. So you get you know pieces from – Sunset Boulevard from you know the Lady Eve from some of her you know stuff. She didn't, we don't get any dresses from Audrey Hepburn. I don't think that uh, there was one uh, uh, two-piece suit from Funny Face. Funny Face, sorry. Yes, okay. So you do get to see a lot of the just the range. The fact that she did a dress for Shelley Temple and all sort of other stuff that you probably yeah. wouldn't know if you were just a casual you know fan. But getting to see her talk about them and just how bossy she was and how sure of herself she was mm. and she could very easily take control and she could just walk up to a you know Academy Awards stage and say thank you and leave. You know, she had this confidence about her, which, you know, is interesting mixed with this desire not to be the centre of attention, mm. you know, which she mm. kind of carried around. So it's like just beautiful the way that she could pull off these, the roles that she needed to do to be able to get her work through. Well, we, we say, you know, bossy, possibly bossy, but basically she just knew what to do and she knew the way that, you know, designers interact with their stars slash clients. So you kind of see that that operating, but she knew how these relationships worked and so she knew how to interact with people. But she had really great ongoing relationships with quite a lot of stars. Um, Barbara Stanwyck was one of them. And Baxter. And Baxter. That's an interesting one. <laughs> um, Barbara Stanwyck, yeah. for instance, actually appreciated... Edith Head's work so much and Barbara Stanwyck was quite self-conscious about part of her looks and one of the most um, well-known things is that, you know, she had quite a long waist which she didn't like a lot and then Edith Head, like, tried to combat that in her designs. But Barbara Stanwyck liked that so much that she actually hired her as her personal designer as well. She wasn't simply a contract employee of Paramount for the most part. She worked for Paramount and then she kind of moved around other studios but she also had... Um, this other relationship with people and she wasn't simply a studio designer but she was more than that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And that, and being able to move between those roles I think is like such a rare thing to see in Hollywood. Yeah. So, I mean, I loved seeing the diversity. There was a lot there that um, was unknown. There yeah. were a lot of the smaller films, films that, that even I, 
you know, had never heard of, let alone not yeah, seen. Yeah, really. There's, obviously, there's a okay. lot that I haven't seen, but there yeah. was a lot there that you haven't heard of, which was really great because even though films might not be very famous or not be very exciting um, or, you know, not even be very good, let's face mm-hmm. it, they can still contain um, work that needs to be appreciated and celebrated and kept in a his, like historical kind of perspective from people like set designers, costume designers, sound designers, all of this type of thing. So that was really great that we got to see some of these costumes from the less iconic films as well. I really loved that. Well, that's the value of archiving. So the um, the historical photos I thought were as interesting as the costumes in some respects. Very well illustrated. The foot, I mean, footage and then also still images from the time. The the end of the exhibition contains a screening room with um, contemporaneous documentaries uh, about Edith Head and her work as a documentary maker. There's also videos showing us the seven Academy Awards you won, seven? Eight. 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 Which oh, yeah, is a record. Each ceremony. Each, each ceremony. So that wasn't that fascinating too, was it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, you know, in the, in the life of the internet and YouTube, we feel like we can see all of those, but yeah. that's not the case. Some yeah. of them are not filmed or not kept, you know, in these um, digital arenas. And so that was fascinating as well. That, yeah. And, and there was the most fabulous image of her and um, Gloria Swanson at Sunset Boulevard. Premiere, which is now the backdrop on my phone. I yeah, loved it so much. Yeah, a lot of really large, super large striking photos yeah. throughout the exhibition. Yeah, yeah. Now, what, Andy and Anders, let's start with you, Anders. What was your, uh, I don't know how much you, what you expected to know already at this point when you went into the exhibition, but was there any gown or costume that you loved a lot that you knew Either that you knew she designed that was not there or that was in a film that was otherwise featured but the dress in your mind was not featured that you are particularly sad about. Like uh, any omissions? Yeah, omissions. Uh, Well, not off the top of my head because I'm not a comprehensive uh, expert on Edith Head by any means. Mm -hmm. But I can talk about what surprised me or what delighted me things that I'd never yep. thought of yeah for me the big one was the focus on the Cecil B DeMille film the Ten Commandments yeah the spectacle was they s- screened clips from the film and the spectacle uh, of the film is just extraordinary I mean it's one thing to read that it was the most expensive film ever made or the biggest set or whatever but to actually see it in colour was quite extraordinary and to see in the flesh the peacock dress in particular, I didn't, which I didn't realise Head had designed actually, it's this sort of iconic dress and amazing cape which unfortunately no longer travels with the dress because it's quite frail but the dress itself was there and it's this beautiful uh, sort of blingy blue dress with like lots of peacock feathers. I feel all like over if it. you said the word bling to Edith Head, she would cringe she, and slap you. She and she would, <laughs> and I would love every second of it. Uh, and so, um, yeah, so that to me was one of the uh, stunning highlights. You pointed out to me this dress that was entirely made out of beads. Oh my god, there were that several. Was extraordinary, but yeah, yeah. there was yeah. Just, there was. Quite a I mean, few the that were just craftsmanship inc- that goes into that. Yeah, so many beads and like so expensive and also so heavy. You know, I mean, some of one of the things that I don't think we realize watching films is that so many of these costumes mm. would have just been so incredibly heavy because uh, of mm. either the beadwork or even as heavily sequined dresses could have just you know weighted you down so much and particularly i mean the the exhibition goes into this like particularly for musicals or show stopping films where there's a lot of movement like the skill involved in wearing these costumes and then doing synchronized movements is quite extraordinary Mm. um so i wanted to and then i also wanted to do a shout out to the dress that Bob Hope wore in this <laughs> film that I'd never heard of, um, Casanova's Big Night. This awful but also amazing looking gender bending comedy. Bob Hope like dresses up as a woman for some, uh, we have no idea why, but there's this dance, this hilarious dance scene. Anyway, I, I loved seeing the dress. If nothing else, it pointed to just how crazy the discrepancy in beauty standards was between men and women because it's next to the dress that was designed for the female lead of that film. Joan Fontaine. Joan Fontaine. Um, And the waist size is extraordinary. Yeah, so one of my big takeaways was waists. I mean, I was just amazed. Um, Necks as well. Everything seems so tiny. Like, 
I was just so thrown by this. Oh, it's extraordinary, isn't it? But uh, like, yeah. have they been taken in? Like, was this something they asked to have done after they stopped wearing them? Was it they ask Edith yeah. to take them in to make them look smaller or something? I don't know, but whatever it was, everybody seems tiny. I was wondering that as well. You know, some of them seemed quite impossibly small, and like, you know, is it because the mannequins are designed that way? And we all know what happens, you know, in in department stores when they want to sell dresses, they um, take them in at the back. Uh, on very petite mannequins. So Unless you're Jane Russell, in which case you can be seemingly normal sized. Yeah, 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 that's true. Um, yeah. But I think, no, I think the answer is that everyone was just like very tiny. I mean, it tells you how. And also, like, had had, like, you know, possibly decades of. of um, oh, just hard work. And Everybody seemed to work super well, hard. Oh, it's yeah. just extraordinary. Can you imagine the level of work that goes into maintaining a body like that? It is. It is. Something that when I, I used to work at Acme and um, I was there for the Hollywood costume exhibition and it was something visitors would always comment on without fail. Still, it's amazing. It's stunning to see it made so physically present. It is extraordinary. The, all, the near impossibility of that mm. kind of standard of, of weight. It's incredible. Yeah, actually. Shocking. Yeah, one of the other big takeaways was just the, the detail in the lace work in so many of those, particularly those period dresses. So I've no interest in really seeing Casanova's Big Night. Oh, I really want to see it. But, yeah, don't care. <laughs> but the um, but the lace work on some of those dresses and those yeah. period outfits were just ludicrous. Like, I'm, I don't think Head was responsible for that specifically. I'm sure that was stuff for the outsourced to people who know how to do this. But just to be able to see it there and see it in the context in which she put it, like, just through, yeah, it just blew my mind just what, how much work goes into these things. Were there any omissions uh, that you noticed? Um, I would love to have seen Roman Holiday got focused on quite a bit in the video and she won an Oscar for it. It would be nice to have seen those. Although we are described and she's spoken, we we get talked through the decision she made around that in one of the videos. That was kind of beautiful. I would like to have seen the later stuff as well. The Sting seems to be kind of like an outlier in a way, like temporarily as well as the style. It's interesting because that, won an Academy Award, but I wonder whether they just didn't consider them because they were two costumes for men. Well, that was, yeah. Um, They just weren't considered, like, spectacular enough to save or whether it was a particular time in which they were, you know, you know, uh, there was a particular demand for either the costumes to be reused or for the material to be reused. And so they either, maybe they perhaps weren't kept or perhaps they were part of another a more complicated um, yeah. collection that was sold off. I mean, uh, you know, a lot of studios sold a lot of their costumes. And so there are simply like a great deal that just don't exist anymore. I, yeah, it wasn't... Um who sold had the huge collection and sold them off? Debbie Reynolds. Debbie Reynolds. Yeah. yeah. And now they're trying to collect them for some museum. So I don't really understand. Yeah, that's yeah. true. I mean, yeah. the, you know, but they only, you know, they exist because she took them from the studios. Well, the yeah, studios yeah, yeah. were yeah. getting rid of them or destroying them, you know. So she is like, you know, a, a great part of why these studios took yeah. recognised. Yeah. So one thing else I, um, that I took away was just uh, how little men <laughs> were involved. Oh, yeah, yeah. So obviously there were a lot of incredibly conservative choices made and a lot of the time they got to call the shot. So there's a little clip that we read in uh, under one of Bob Hope's suits about how he just would walk in and say, how about a sports coat? was like his answer to everything because well, he wanted often, to be comfortable. Often men had to bring their own suits. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, it, it was very rare that a man's suit uh, or costumes were designed uh, often, you know, for a long time at least. They, um, men just had to bring whatever they had at home, basically. Yeah, so that's yeah, that was an interesting thing to learn. Yeah, or buy off the rack and then, you know, there's no point displaying a costume that was bought off the rack. Yeah, or you'd have a nice suit and it would get yeah. reused in 20 films and then it would yeah. be thrown away or something. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that kind of thing, rather than being specifically designed for a purpose. But also I think one of my favourite things was so the uh, Lady in the Dark, just, yep. just seeing how the times changed. I mean, another thing was actually how interesting um, Edith Head's signature would change over time yep. as well to become <laughs> this very distinctive thing with two slashes through it that we saw, like you see quite in, in large on a wall towards the end of the exhibition. Uh, like during World War II when there had to be you know, men, women taking men's jobs. So the fashion followed. And so this was kind of interesting to see these developments change from even like the way that she would often do a lot of the glamorous dresses, the big ball gowns and that sort of stuff that she's more famous for. But then there was a lot of this stuff happening you know, stories about women moving into senior positions in businesses and this sort of stuff and, mm. and the fashion that was made to follow that, which would have been totally groundbreaking at the time. Yeah. In the case of our example, her thoughts and planning may well have followed a pattern like this. Let's see now. The girl is young, about 20. Her sweetheart has just left her after a quarrel. She's going out this evening with another boy, a friend of the family who means nothing to her. How would she dress? 
somberly because she's unhappy about the quarrel? Or should she be characterized differently from a dress point of view? I wonder if I shouldn't dress her in a manner to help cover up her unhappiness. Say in something white and gay and sparkling. What about material? Jersey? Perhaps embroidered in sequins? In the story, she does come from a family of means, but there's no false note there. A dress like that would give her an air, too. Make her look defiant and at the same time alluring. A fun fact I learned from that montage was that there were two Oscars for costume design for a long time, one for black and white and one for colour. Yeah, I mean, you know, and rightly so, because they, you know, it was such a skill to design costumes for black and white movies. You know, you had to choose the colours really, really Mm -hmm. carefully. Mm -hmm. Um, You couldn't just pick black and white dresses. Yeah, (laughs) basically. So, yeah, it was really, really quite, you know, a skill. But wait a minute. She cries just before she leaves for her date. That's a big emotional moment and deserves all the emphasis we can give it. We don't want the audience to be more interested in the gown than in the character of the scene. Better make the gown less extreme so it won't detract from the girl. Chiffon, then. Attractive, but not as flamboyant as the other dress. It's summertime, too, so chiffon would be appropriate. Suits her character, too. Adds to it, in fact. She does wear it well. And it will be striking in the moonlight. Good. Chiffon it is. So that's uh, the costume designer Edith Head in Hollywood, and that's um, happening at the Bendigo Art Gallery until the 21st of January. And now to Mubi. Eloise, would you like to start us off by telling us your picks from the current slate on Mubi? Uh, well, the film that's on movie right now that I love the most is Raw Deal, Anthony Mann's film from 1948. It's a film noir um, and it's kind of a really low budget, not poverty row, but sort of uh, comes from that tradition. It stars Claire Trevor, Marsha Hunt, who is still alive, by the way, at the age of 100. Cool. Oh, nice going. And Dennis O'Keefe. Uh, in the three kind of main roles. Oh, and John Ireland as well and Raymond Burr. How can we leave those two off? We cannot. <laughs> but it's this incredible film uh, in Los Angeles, filmed in, in, not Los Angeles, in San Francisco. It's incredible. It's like very, it's very violent and very dark and there's a lot of emphasis on um, the criminal operations. Anthony Mann was very attuned to this kind of thing. Not only narratively, is it very violent um, and, you know, kind of really the essence of what a noir is, but also visually it's incredible. Um, cinematography by John Alton. So it's really, really dark. There's a lot of chiaroscuro. It's really incredible. It also has this wonderful motif. And Claire Trevor is one of my favourite actors and she's so wonderful at expressing pathos. She can be really heartbroken and but really um, aggressive but also kind of big at the same time she's got this incredible skill and anyway there's incredible motif particularly with Claire Trevor and a clock and so I love clocks in films and clock sounds and clock imagery and Claire Trevor has a voiceover throughout the film and there's this particular shot or sequence of shots towards the end where Claire Trevor's face is superimposed to be reflective in this clock face and it's just Uh, magnificent and wonderful and kind of uh, expresses everything that a film noir should possibly ever express anyway it's like it's a really good film it's very easy to watch it's like you know it's a simple narrative it's straightforward basically it's just a whole bunch of noir ingredients chucked into a pot and then out comes a really good movie so raw deal is my recommendation i think there's quite a lot to go a lot of time to go. Yeah, there is. There's a, it finishes on Boxing Day. Okay, great. Well, Ooh. Christmas present for you guys. <laughs> Thanks, Ellie. Good to know that Christmas is less than a month away. <laughs> um, so my pick here is The Screen Illusion. This 2010 French drama piqued my interest thanks to its director, Mathieu Amaric, who is a stalwart of the French art house scene, probably best known to English-speaking audiences 
as the villain in James Bond movie Quantum of Solace. And this is a similarly short film, comes in at a brisk 77 minutes. Almeric adapts a, uh, just over an hour, I know. Almeric adapts a 17th century play by Pierre Corneille. His car, what's interesting about this is his cast are all members of the Comédie Française, which is the state theatre of France. And I believe it is the oldest running theatre in the world, actually. So he's got this theatrical cast. He's an adapting a French 17th century play. And intriguingly, they all speak in Alexandrine, which is a particular French poetic style of 12-syllable metre that was popular at the time that this play was written. So... It's very intellectual, very highbrow, very French. Um, and it's the kind of film that I think I only see thanks to Mubi. They do these sort of these sort of concept films of French where they're interrogating artistic ideas and theatrical ideas. And this is sort of very much within that tradition and Mubi are very good at showcasing that kind of film. So that's my pick of the current slate. What about you, Andy? Well, maybe you're now showing my one of my picks from Myth 2011, which is a low-budget American film called Jess Plus Moss. And uh, this is a film about a 18-year-old girl called Jess and her 12-year-old second cousin called Moss who live in the sort of southern poverty that we saw earlier this year in films like Logan Lucky and last year in films like American Honey. Um, so it's a lot about the ennui that you experience living in somewhere like possibly rural Kentucky or Tennessee. It's never really um, defined, but it's summer and they're both bored and the farmlands are pretty much empty of people and they kind of have the run of the land. Um, and Moss wants to learn more about his family because his parents were best friends with Jess's parents and they died in a car accident. Um, but they don't have much else to do but hang out. And so it's directed by this guy, Clay Jater, who's probably best known for directing the TV series Chef's Table. Where oh, he, yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, so he has this peculiar, oh. peculiar style where he'll, yeah. like, give you a close-up of something environmental or culinary in the case of Chef's Table, and they'll have voiceover and with it. So you get all these quite intimate voiceover, but you're kind of looking at these different things. And so there's a lot of these just scenes or where, where they're, like, climbing over an old car or walking through a field or riding bikes or exploring a, a house because every house you see there is empty, has, has plants growing through the window, it's been abandoned, there's broken tables and whatever else in there. And they're kind of having these kind of imagination games. And it's really, really notable for its use of 16mm stock and the way that this kind of lends its tactility to the friendship as well. Um, so it's kind of, it's pretty mesmerising. I, I got really caught by the spell of it um, when I saw it in the cinema and I was, was started watching it again and it's just as effective on a smaller screen. Uh, and so I would definitely recommend that. I think it has like, – it's also – there's a lot of films that came out around, I suppose even earlier, like Days Confused that are about childhood and about the coming of age and all this sort of stuff. But this kind of just bypasses a lot of the that sort of more getting to know you stuff and just goes straight into the what people are like and watching them kind of deal with these kind of bigger concepts. I thought it was a really, really um, beautifully beautiful film and that runs until the 27th of December. Cool. This is a hobo suit, darling. Oh, you can't be seen in this. I won't allow it. Fifteen years ago, maybe, but now... Oh, what do you mean? You designed it. I never look back, darling. It distracts from the now. You need a new suit. Don't much is certain. A new suit? Oh, where the heck am I going to get a new you suit? You can't! It's impossible! I'm far too busy, so ask me now before I again become sane. Wait, you want to make me a suit? No, you push too hard, darling. But I accept. It will be bold. Dramatic. Yeah. Heroic. Yeah, something classic. Like, uh, D Dyna Guy. Oh, he had a great look. Oh, the cape and the boots. No capes. And so we'll finish up today by looking at our favourite costumes of film history. And I'll start this discussion, because I know people have got a lot to say, with caveats. So firstly, this is like by no means a definitive list. I don't think of the best costumes or anything, because that's not something that we're able to really do. But also I think it's sort of a combination of our favourite outfits and the ones we think are more iconic or important um, than others. And Elo, you particularly dislike lists, so this is specifically not a top five or a top three or anything like that. So it's kind of a miracle we're even talking about this, to be honest. Um, are there any other caveats you would like to include before we dive into our favourite costumes in film history? Uh, well, I think we kind of went ahead and tried to think of costumes that were not in Edith Head. Films. Yeah, that's true because we have discussed um, some of those. Because we just spent a while talking about Edith Head. But what I want to do is kind of just actually begin by going through some of my favourite Edith Head costumes, <laughs> if that's all right. Uh, and you guys can jump in if you want, but then like put those aside. Hello, you're the expert. Films. It sounds great. Um, so, well, anyway, I did want to kind of – there were several um, 
things at the exhibition that were interesting that like films costumes from films that I felt like other costumes were more iconic um, and that's always really interesting to see because it's like well what part of history I, I don't know what has happened to the other more iconic costumes but it's like is that does that mean that the only part of um, a certain film that's being recognized is perhaps the least kind of iconic moment and then what will happen a bit later on down the track in terms of it being historically remembered or whatnot um, but there was for instance, a, two costumes, I think, from What A Way To Go, that film with Shirley MacLaine. Um, oh, yes. For which one of them was uh, her bathing suit, a bikini, I think it was a bikini bottoms and then a longer top. But yes, like, yes, kind of I remember. Not lace, but um, very kind of ornate design mm. in that way. Mm. Um, and that was amazing. But obviously the best costume from that film is um, Shirley MacLaine's pink feathered gown. Um, and, you know, kind of long coat that she wears. That's the best um, of all time. <laughs> so that, I mean, that's so iconic and that's like just has such an incredible visual appeal, that costume. Um, and it's such a silly film and so you think, well, why is this film, why does this film deserve recognition? I mean, in a lot of ways, it is because of a few of the performances, but in a lot of ways it's because of the costumes. Um, so that was like, you know, that was incredible to see that bikini, I have to say, but... Um, I do, I do love that the pink dress. Um, another th- one was a foreign affair, the Billy Wilder film from 1948, um, in which Marlena Dietrich's costumes were kind of the most incredible. You know, there's sort of two um, f- women pitted off against one another. One of them is a, a um, s- kind of a nerd I suppose and one of them is a sultry seductress and the dress that was on display was Jean Arthur who plays kind of the square in which in the scene in which she goes and she like tries to perform this song and acrobatics and whatnot at a nightclub but it was this incredible dress and actually really stood out because it's a black and white film and it looks like just a black dress with a few diamonds on it um, or jewels but it's actually a very dark brown dress and it was so small I'd never seen a Jean Arthur costume before and she was uh, so tiny. And I've done a lot of research on Jean Arthur in the past and I've never come across anything that, that talk, you know, you come across like um, things about uh, Veronica Lake, for instance, about how small she was, but I've never kind of seen this about Jean Arthur. Anyway, that was really quite stunning. But I did really kind of ap- quite appreciate seeing that. But one of my favourite costumes is the Marlene Dietrich costume that she wears um, in the nightclub when she kind of wears this incredible long-sleeved gown that is just full sequins and shimmers and shimmers as though she's this incredible creature and she she says that's when she says the line an illusion slightly used um, and says all of these incredible things anyway it's just wondrous and the costume kind of really complements what's going on and, and her character as well my last one before I shut up about Edith Head, is Ball of Fire, uh, Howard Hawks' film from 1941, starring Barbara Stanwyck. I can't pick a favourite outfit from this film. I love all of them. The most kind of iconic from this film, I think, and there was a photo perhaps in the exhibition of Barbara Stanwyck wearing this dress. Um, I'm not sure, but there were no costumes from it. So she wears, she, she uh, appears on stage in a nightclub singing this song, Drum Boogie. She's dubbed, of course, but she is wearing this amazing floor length sequined gown with puffed sleeves that are full, like chiffon, and then the rest of it is sequins, the bodice is sequined. And she wears this skirt that at first looks like it's just got like a, a bunch of slits up to her th- upper thigh, but in fact, it's actually. Um, just kind of it's fringed so and there was another dress I forget which film it was for who wore it but there was another dress in the on display in the exhibition which was a similar design so fringed skirt all the way up because that obviously increases fluidity when someone's dancing or performing and that was equally that was beaded rather than sequined I think which is as it is in Ball of Fire but just you know so stunning and obviously Edith Head has has realised that this is an amazing way to design a dress and to increase the visual appeal of someone dancing anyway that film is amazing and if i i think those two films it sounds a little bit boring to say that they both star papa stanwick and are both from 1941 but i feel like those two <laughs> films if you just put them together would like equal me 
um, and the end of me and my life in a nutshell (laughs) because I wouldn't need anything else. (laughs) Anyway, also uh, Edith Head, at some point I'm fairly sure, I did read this uh, in several uh, different locations I think years ago, said that uh, Barbara Stanwyck had uh, better legs than Marlena Dietrich. Not to say that Marlene Dietrich's legs weren't amazing, which they are. But anyway, I just need to um, say that <laughs> fact uh, every now and again to stick up for my lady. Uh, yeah. So cool. there's some of my favourite of Edith Head and now we can move on from the Edith Head conversation. But I just wanted to get that out there because they weren't costumes that were the exhibition, so I couldn't talk about them at length. Anyway. Well, on the topic of Marlene Dietrich, I'm going to do a shout out to Travis Banton's design for the tuxedo that she wears in Joseph von Sternberg's 1930 film Morocco. Similarly iconic. I know we're using that term a lot today, but it's true. So she comes on stage in this sort of nightclub cabaret environment does this stunning rendition of a song and then she goes and kisses a lady and it's a justifiably famous moment where she's essentially she's doing drag really uh, and pre-Hayes Code um, cinema so before an official censorship regime was in place in Hollywood the films they yeah I mean it's just like a really sexy very modern and uh, also kind of a glimpse into where movies could have gone had they not Uh, where a particular kind of movie, I should say, could have gone had they not instead encountered this sort of state-sanctioned censorship regime. And then, you know, it's a whole other conversation about how that changed um, filmmaking and how filmmakers got around it. So all of that encapsulated in one sort of iconic scene. So, I I, I mean, I love that scene. I love that film. You can just find it on YouTube if you've never seen it before, but it's sort of justifiably famous as her most probably her most well-known costume, I would say, or image is that scene. So, yes, that would be one of my favourite costume designs. Andy, what have you got? Um, well, I've got a lot, really. <laughs> uh, so I didn't really notice costume very much as a film fan and yeah. later a critic of sorts until I saw um, Nicholas Holt's ivory white mohair boat neck jumper from a single man. Oh, my God. Which... Kind of just made me stop paying attention to whatever else was going on on the screen because I was like, oh, my God, that jumper. I wonder that his face. Oh, my God, I got so excited. So I did spend a bit of money trying to find budget versions of that jumper, but never to any um, decent effect. You wore a very good simulation (laughs) for a hot minute in (laughs) circa 2014 Melbourne. You would have seen Nicholas Holt in a single man walking around the bars of Melbourne. I tried. It didn't quite work. Um, but there was uh, the, having looked back and having watched movies since that jumper came to my life mm. um, I've, been, I've been reassessing <laughs> stuff particularly because recently um, in Melbourne we had the House of Dior exhibition at NGV which gave us a whole bunch of amazing outfits but it made it for very different contexts so what was really striking to, about today's exhibition was just the reasons it was made so it was very very specific like you know she had all these different factors that are going into why this person's wearing this dress how it's being made whether to put more detail on the sleeve or whatever else and of course in the House of Dior you've got this need this competition you've got this need drive this commercial drive to try and be more amazing so a lot of the stuff that i really liked was not so much about how to make something that's going to last for history but how to best to serve a story and so i guess another one that for more much more recent times that stuck out for me was a um the dress worn by claire danes in the romeo and juliet i'm not a humongous baz luhrmann fan but this is like a really great example of of a costume that doesn't even turn up the first time claire danes is introduced there's this famous scene where her and leonardo dicaprio are looking through an aquarium and they see each other's face and there's all this you know this Song going on in the background, all this sort of stuff, and then as they go into a, get drawn into a costume party, that you know you see this uh, wings on the back of her white dress, and so this because you know you know Romeo and Juliet a lot of the time, so it all so this gives it's a perfect example of like innocence, but also it's going to amplify the tragedy that's in, inevitable. Plus, you're being thrown into this place into this costume party where there's a whole bunch of different characters, and they're mainly being expressing themselves via costume. So you know Claire Danes is forced to dance with this astronaut who looks completely ridiculous, but yet yeah, it's an awesome astronaut suit as well, um, and you know he's. Uh, Leonardo's dressed as a knight and then there's a bad guy who's dressed as a sort of devil so there's all this sort of stuff going on so it's just a really great way of in modern filmmaking I thought to be able to just get a lot of information across very quickly in an entertaining way 
and I've got a lot more to say about other costumes, but I'll, I'll just stop there for the moment. Yeah, you're <laughs> right. I do. I love that that costume party, but also the idea, the concept of introducing these characters. Well, not. I mean, they've all been introduced already, but kind of giving them this way of establishing themselves via the costumes, because you know, the kind of idea of a costume is like you know, come as you aren't, right? But they yeah. all come as they are. Yeah. More or less. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. It's beautiful, really. It is. It's a great little scene, yeah. I was thinking about, you know, what is really iconic and what is kind of – what are some of my favourite films, my most me- the most memorable costumes, I suppose. Whether or not they're my favourite or not, I can't really say. But there's this film called Letty Linton starring Joan Crawford. The costumes are designed by Adrian and actually not all of the film is available. It was actually withdrawn due to lawsuits suggesting either – Libel or plagiarism. Um, anyway, all of the costumes in it are amazing. This this particular fur collared coat that Joan Crawford wears, and I remember I had an image of it, like this very particular. You know, they obviously take these really glamorous production photos, production stills, and also just star photos back in the day. A lot of them by George Horrell, for instance. Um, there's this photo that I used to have on my desktop, which was of Joan Crawford, her face kind of surrounded by this incredible large fur collar that she wears with her head buried under a cocked hat. Um, it's really, really divine. She also wears this two-tone dress with a cream skirt and a bodice that is half cream and half black, kind of ties both at the neck and at the, at the hips. It's really stunning. Um, I feel like this film needs to be pointed out because we have, and perhaps some of our listeners will have seen, the film about Ori Kelly, documentary about Ori Kelly, who was you know Australia's own Hollywood costume designer, directed by Gillian Armstrong. And I think that one of the dresses from Letty Linton is used in that film, although I could be wrong, but it is an example. There was this particular type of dress that I think became known as the Letty Linton dress that was like big puffy sleeves, very bold, and it, it got uh, famous because it had a number of knockoffs made and so people, you know, uh, you know, the trickle-down effect, everyone could buy it and it became really popular. But that was one of the things that I think Ori Kelly, when he came into the industry, was specifically trying to design against that kind of look, you know, the over-the-top puffy sleeves kind of thing. He wanted everything to be streamlined and he wanted to um, enhance the slenderness of not only the body but also, you know, the dress line type of thing and so the dress from Lady Linton is so famous but it is also something that possibly could have affected the future of the costume design industry because of how Ori Kelly came in and tried to change that type of style anyway it's a really interesting example of you know what happened not only in Hollywood in terms of production but also in terms of um, costume design but that you know I mean Joan Crawford looks good in anything can I just say? And so yes, you can. <laughs> so it's a really um, mm. stunning costume. Crawford and Mildred Pierce, that oh. silhouette. Yep, amazing. Uh, now, Eloise, your happy stick of fork in me. I'm done. Place is to Barbara Stanwyck films. Mine is Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. <laughs> what? Uh, no, no, it's not. I'm joking. Oh, but uh, God. <laughs> the, oh. Uh, and there, look, there is a critical reevaluation underway about <laughs> style, the Star Wars prequels. That's a conversation for another day, Certainly which is. I think we should have. <laughs> anyway, um, I do. The new Star do, Wars is coming out soon. Uh, yeah. The new one is coming out. I don't know how excited I'm about that actually. But uh, anyway, um, there's neither here nor there. The point is, <laughs> can not just abandon that subject there? Hang on, you're not excited about the new Star Wars. You are excited about Phantom Menace. I, I just think there's a lot of creativity going. It's complete. It's very messy. It's a very messy film. And there's a lot of problems with it, but you cannot fault the bizarre spectacle of the film. I, I can mean, and he, will, but maybe at another okay, time. Okay, yeah. okay. Uh, I mean, the audacity of starting your your blockbuster, your much anticipated blockbuster, return after twenty years or whatever. The audacity of starting it with complicated discussions on taxation routes. Yeah, isn't that extraordinary? No. <laughs> I find it's it amazing. Extremely boring. Anyway, anyway, look, this is all beside the point. The point, yeah, the point I'm trying to make here is that Trish Bigar, the costume designer, I think, can we all agree that the costumes in Star Wars Episode One are quite extraordinary? I particularly Padme Amidala, Natalie Portman's uh, as a queen, her. Uh, <laughs> Quite over the top 
bitch. Yeah, well, <laughs> and he's rolling his eyes. No, because right I now. saw it all before on the cover of Bjork's album Homogenic. Ah, uh, do you think they've just ripped off Bjork? Yes, that's what's I going do. on here. Yeah, I, but you're right. I mean, he's, if, if I, you're going to say something strong about that film, well, look, costume, but what is yeah. Star Wars if not ripping off other things? Yeah, I mean, very it's, true. It seems to me C3PO yeah. is a rip off of another famous. Yeah, costume, actually, if you're going to rip off anything, ripping off Bjork is a fair way to go. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Why not? So I think. Look, I think the costume design in the Star Wars films is, I mean, it's very interesting. It's the stuff that we remember from, the stuff I remember from Phantom Menace is Padme Amidala in that ginormous headdress. And then like when she's undercover with her body, with her like body double and her like Queen's Guard with those really funky like hooded cloaks. The robes that Qui-Gon Jinn and um, Obi-Wan Kenobi wear are the scrappy, Anakin scrappy, um, let's not talk about Anakin in that movie. Um, yeah, <laughs> I, I don't know. I think visually and visually as a whole, it's interesting. But yeah, so, uh, uh, but from all the Star Wars films, actually, the now that I think about it, the costumes are key elements, particularly the early uh, ones like A New Hope. You've got Leia's hair. And C-3PO, who he, the, the costume for C-3PO is very reminiscent, uh, again, in a sort of pseudo George, uh, George Lucas is his plagiarism kind of way, of Walter Schulze Mittendorf's design in the 1927 film Metropolis. Yeah, yeah good point. the um, iconic, again, iconic, Maria robot, who I think his German, the German name for that robot is the Maschinenmensch. Yeah, in keeping with that film's expressionistic style, it's such a yeah, such a hugely influential embodiment, I guess, of the futurism of that film. And I think through the design of that costume's ongoing popularity, it almost summarizes. I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's it maybe too great a statement to say that it's that costume embodies the 20th century, but um, it uh, it certainly resonated from 1927 right through to 1977. So that to me says that it says a lot about a time of great change and, and future drive um, that that can be sort of embodied in one costume. I find quite extraordinary. That's the magic of costume design, I guess. Yeah. I also thought it worth drawing attention to suits uh, so, because they are like always turning up throughout film history, um, and so I thought, well, the stri- most striking, most effective suit that I could think of was Michael Caine in the Ipcrest file. Although a lot of people might go, you know, James Bond in Doctor No or something like that is fairly iconic. Did consider it, but went with another movie also produced by Harry Salzberg. Um, so Sidney J. Fury's Ipcrest file is another example of Kane turning up on set with his own personal tailor. He t- looks totally killer the entire time. So he's got this great tweed suit. Um, it's also perfect for the film and for the character itself, who is this kind of almost empty vessel in a way. He, there's a very cockeyed view of London in the late 60s you get in this film, and he kind of just moves through it in this beautiful sort of uh, gets in some ethically dubious situations, but kind of always looks really sharp. And so I think there's an, also another part of costuming which also makes you um, empathise or sympathise with a character who looks really, really killer. With the glasses and with the mod look and, you know, with the iconic photographs that were taken of him around that time, I thought he, he kind of fantastically embodies this grey twill suit and navy knitted tie with a half Windsor. And Len Dayton's novel kind of uh, is a really fantastic vehicle for this sort of fashion. So I think it's a really great melding of director and star and fashion and material that we should throw some attention toward. Cool. It's true. I also really love... Jean Moreau's costumes in The Bride Wore Black, the Truffaut film from 1968. I did a little bit of just, well, very quick um, research. I actually probably shouldn't even call it research, but I tried to find who the costume designer was and I, there was no one credited online that I could that I could um, kind of discern. So I don't know whether that meant that there was no costume designer or whether it was a collaborative process um, and no one was credited or that it was the production designer who did it or if it was Truffaut and Moreau themselves. But she wears some incredible stuff. Um, there's this one particular dress that is kind of like this very 60s, like um, kind of mod pop um, style, um, this black and white dress uh, blouse. There's just this really I, – I can't even quite describe it, but it's just a really amazing and um, like looks stunning um, and you would not possibly want to cross – Jean Moreau for a number of reasons in that film, um, but also because of the costumes that she's wearing. Um, so that's another really striking one. And it's really great because 
um, in the 1930s, a lot of costumes in the 1930s sort of looked like this incredible and striking um, in a really simple way, like a lot of kind of just regular day wear or office clothing was very simple but had these incredibly ornate um, designs or really um, amazing, you know, kind of quirks or specifications, but it was just the way that it was. But also it was, you know, invariably almost always in black and white. Um, and so to see something in colour in this Truffaut film is amazing. But to go back to these like 30, 1930s and 40s, this particular outfit that just I, – I think about this almost every single day, this particular blouse. There's a film called The Man Who Came to Dinner, directed by William Keeley. Uh, in 1942 and it was adapted from a play which is very obvious because it basically all takes place in someone's living room um, i actually really don't enjoy this film at all <laughs> it's monty hellman i think is the plays the patriarch anyway he's basically i cannot stand him at all betty davis is very good but anyway i can't stand him at all costumes are designed by ori kelly but Anne sheridan wears this blouse that is in uh, rather than buttons the two pieces of fabric or the fabric is joined together like um at her front by these regular uh, uh clasped hands i suppose or a single hand like a, you know about four of them down the front of her blouse that clasp the fabric on the other side anyway it's like utterly insane you look at it and you're like is this well, this is surreal like how are these why is this design like who thought of this who thought it would be okay to put like these hands that could be um, misinterpreted or whatever or look strange I mean it was all part of a style um, but it just looks so so odd Um, but I love it I think about it almost every single day this blouse Um, it's amazing and there were like several types um, several kind of things that were a bit over the top at this time there was remember this film called The Crystal Ball from 1933 designed possibly by Edith Head and Age um, working together which had this, this large feature rooster on it that's kind of like another one of these weird feature feature um, blouses in this film called Hollywood Canteen Joan Crawford wears a sweater with a cat on the back of it I don't know it was not not credited to anyone it was just Warner Brothers maybe it was something that they had lying around but it was just like a really amazing thing part of the fashion I think sometimes if it was just rather than being a feature that necessarily told a story or developed any particular point, um, narrative point or character, which is what a lot of these gowns did, as we've discussed, if it was just a character who had no function but to say a number of lines or have a role in someone else's um, life, then maybe the way to do it was to make their costume a little bit crazy. Anyway, that's another one that I really love. Cool. Um, so I'm just going to finish now with four costumes in quick succession. I want to start with Joan Crawford in straight jacket. Cool. Now she, so she plays this sort of axe murderer type who um, she kills her husband in the opening of the film, and then she gets sent away to um, a mental institution for years, and then she comes out and lives with her daughter and her daughter's family. Now, what's interesting, what I found really interesting about the costuming here is this jewellery that Crawford's character wears, really sort of bangle, like really bulky bangles, I guess, and she's always making noise whenever she moves. So there's this constant undercurrent of jewellery noise in the background of this entire film, which is really, uh, like, just becomes, like, this oral character quirk that you associate with, like, whenever you see her on screen, she's got, like, she's dangling around her hands and clunking things around, and, like, that's all in the film. And I just thought that was a very interesting, distinctive example of the sound of a costume adding to the characterization. Two Todd Haynes films to um, give a shout out to. I'm, uh, I mean, technically it's a HBO miniseries, I'm sorry, but uh, Mildred Pierce, the Todd Haynes version, I found really interesting because the costuming in that is, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm fairly sure it's all taken from period patterns and designs so the dresses that Kate Winslet's character wears are distinctly noticeable for not being attempts at glamorising her character or they're not your typical costumes that you would see in a period drama you know they're sort of quite bulky and um, sort of simple designs in many ways and so you watch it and it's immediately striking how different it is to the way we've been culturally taught to think 
of 50s and 40s uh, vintage wear according to the self-conscious vintage films and TV that we get fed all the time. So it's a very interesting counterpoint to that. Also, Rooney Mara's um, jacket that she wears in Carol, I just think it's an adorable little hooded jacket that she wears for like the whole film. The tartan kind of tartan. Yes, yeah, 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 the tartan with the hood, which is just, I love it. And then finally, I just want to give a shout out to the tank top that Sigourney Weaver wears in Alien. Oh, good call. Which is, again, very iconic. Yes. We do a yes. Yeah, yes yes to Sigourney Weaver. (laughs) And very practical. And exactly. exactly. Yeah, which is exactly opposite of my one thing that I just want to mention one more outfit before we leave, which is, and a lot of these these things we've talked about are very practical and very, um, you know, much like incorporated into the character. Whereas this piece that I just want to talk about is humongous and it takes all the attention from everything else that's happening and a lot is happening. And that is Walter Plunkett's, Walton Plunkett's uh, white dress that he gives to Sid Charisse to wear during the singing in the rain. So this is like a relatively simple white leotard with a bit of frill on it, but then it has this 50 foot long uh, white uh, chiffon train that follows behind it. It's this bizarre dream sequence in the middle of singing in the rain, which is already a fairly unusual film. And basically there's an amazing dance happening um, and famously Gene Kelly didn't want Sid Charisse to be standing next to him because he was too short and he didn't want her to be seen to be too tall so she had to bend over all the time that she was near him but it doesn't really matter because no one's thinking about height you're just looking at this phenomenal interplay between the fan and this train and then the great dancing that's happening on this depthless set that they're all dancing on so Charisse's dancing is already like this thing of wonder but then this fan and this dress just kind of take it to another level and so that's I think the very first thing that I thought of when I thought about what would we talk about when we talk about great iconic um, outfits just very quickly uh, Kate Blanchett's dress and headpiece in Fellowship of the Ring which I thought masterfully combined nature and its force and fierceness and power and beauty also really loved the strange retro futurism of Joanna Cassidy's transparent plastic jacket in Blade Runner oh my god yes great. really really unusual oh, like yeah. she just throws that thing on and runs out and it's only on for like a couple of minutes but I was like what hang on and finally all the costumes in Grey Gardens oh good yeah yeah great this is the best thing to wear for the day. You understand. Yeah. Because I don't like women in skirts. And the best thing is to wear pantyhose or some pants under a short skirt, I think. Then you have the pants under the skirt. And then you can pull the stockings up over the pants underneath the skirt. Mm-hmm. And you can always take off the skirt and use it as a cape. So I think this is the best costume for the day. Okay. <laughs> have to think these things up you know mother wanted me to come out in a kimono so we had quite a fight and to take us out ello you have some final i also want to give a shout out to so one of my favorite films of all time that breaks my heart is paris blues directed by martin ritt 1961 it's probably a a american uk co-production um filmed in paris obviously it's about this jazz club jazz community um and it's kind of about two relationships between sydney poitier and diane carroll and paul newman and joanne woodward and it's heartbreaking. But Diane Carroll, I'm sorry to say Joanne Woodward, but Diane Carroll's costumes are incredible and amazing. I love all of them. She wears these wool coats, um, fur coats with high collars, these beautiful shift dresses. You know, it's the 1960s, so why wouldn't you? Um, but they're just, they, they stand out. And I can remember so many of them, but I can't remember anything that Joanne Woodward wears. Um, I mean, I remember all of the sentiments of that film. But I, you know, these the two things that often you remember the most are sentiments and emotions and then also costumes. So if you can get both of them out of a film, then then it's really doing something for you. <laughs> but that's something. And I mean, there are a whole bunch of reasons why you should watch that film. But that's the costumes are, are one of them. And the other thing is, I mean, how could I possibly get a podcast episode out there without mentioning my um, number two Babs, Barbara Streisand. Babs. <laughs> Babs in Funny Girl, William Wyler, 1968. Don't rain on my parade. Um, she's wearing this amazing medium orange dress that's ankle length, brown fur and muff, button forearms. It's really like a great style, really terrific. She stands out from all of the rest of the gals that she's hanging out with and then she, of course, runs off and runs... Um, onto another ship to, to chase after Omar Sharif. I mean, wouldn't we all? Yes. Yes, boys. <laughs> yes. Thank uh, you. Yep. Um, cool. Okay. So, I mean, it's formal, but it's also freeing and it sets her apart from the crowd. Obviously, Funny Girl is about her, Fanny Bryce being someone who, who does not 
fit in and, and does what she wants. And so the costume definitely reflects that. Um, the designer is Irene Sharaf and I have not come across her name otherwise. But it's definitely something. And I mean, all of the costumes in that film are terrific um, and stand out and really complement what Barbara Streisand's character is going through at any particular time. So that's something. But I just want to finish on another Barbara Streisand film, On a Clear Day You Can See Forever, Vincent Minnelli from 1970. Now, this is an interesting film in that it's got quite a few costume designers. One of them is Cecil Beaton. Um, so it was, I think, the last film he that he he designed the period costume. So there's so really it's a ridiculous premise. But basically, Barbara Streisand occasionally has these dreams or delusions that she's a character from several centuries beforehand, um, going through a court case, and she wears these amazing, amazingly ornate beaded costumes, beaded hats, um, and they were all designed by Cecil Beaton, and they're really. Um, really incredible and you can kind of obviously track her character and how she acts not only via um, Streisand's performance but also via the costumes and also um, John Anderson is someone who designed the men's costumes in that film um, including a bright yellow woolen turtleneck sweater worn by Jack Nicholson and I'm just going to finish it there because it's a nice way to end it. Cool. Thanks, Hello, And um, thank you all very much for listening through to the end of episode 38 of Cultural Capital. If you'd like to rate or review us on iTunes, we'd be very grateful. You can follow us on Facebook at Cultural Capital Podcast. We're on Twitter at The Cold Cap Pod. And you can find me at Andy Ricky. You can find me at Eloise Low Ross. And please let us know if you um, love or hate any of the costumes we've talked about. Yeah, that'd be great. And I'm Anders Furs on Twitter. Please do at me with your favourite costumes. <laughs> thank you very much. 